officers did arrive very quickly and almost immediately discovered that we had three young people who were dead in an apartment there and as we pretty quickly thereafter learned had been murdered in that apartment go law enforcement go law enforcement go law enforcement go law enforcement the podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. On February 10th, 2015, three Muslim students were brutally murdered in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This case brought national and international attention. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, Chapel Hill Police Department Chief Chris Blue discusses his case the impact on the families of the victims, and on the community. Chief Blue, welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. When did you become chief of the Chapel Hill Police Department? Well, I became chief in December of 2010, uh, so coming up on my seven-year anniversary. Was that the first law enforcement agency that you started with? It is. I uh, started with, uh, hired by the town of Chapel Hill in July of 1997, was sworn in as a police officer in November of 1997, and I've been here ever since. Had you always intended to go into law enforcement? Absolutely not. In fact, um, for many of my formative years, I was running away from law enforcement. And, And that's a little bit of a joke, but not entirely. I grew up in the town where I now serve and attended the university here. The Chapel Hill is the home of the University of North Carolina, the uh, the nation's first public university, it was founded in 1789, and, and as you can tell, we're proud of that fact. And I, uh, I did not grow up dreaming of being in law enforcement, and um, but I found my way into it when I was kind of reached my mid twenties and realized I. Uh, hadn't yet found my calling. And while I wasn't sure that this was my calling, now, to be very honest with you, I had two criteria in mind. One, I needed a job with some benefits and retirement and some potential advancement. Um, and then perhaps a little more noble, the other, uh, uh, the other um, point that uh, was important to me was that I'd do something that was meaningful to me and enabled me to stay in the community that I love. And law enforcement certainly checks that box. Um, So it was not a dream going into it, but it has turned into a dream come true. Since this wasn't one of your long-term career goals getting into it, when you started, did you say, yeah, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? Or did you think, you know, I'll I'll give it a try and, and see how it works out? I majored in broadcasting as an undergraduate, and when I graduated with a degree, 
uh, in that field and communications, radio, television, motion picture production and directing. Uh, that was what I majored in thinking that I would be interested in television news, probably directing. But pretty quickly after I graduated, I realized, you know, I don't want to leave my hometown and uh, to advance in that industry, which my brother before me had done. Uh, you really need to be willing to move to increasingly larger markets. And um, that wasn't of an interest to me. I really wanted to stay here in my hometown. And so I took a job um, in a restaurant, actually, and met a guy there who was in very much the same boat as me, recent college graduate, not sure where he was going in life. And this is absolutely no joke. A year or so into our friendship, as we both were working in a restaurant together and pretty convinced that we didn't see the restaurant business as a lifelong career, we were in the uh, restaurant one night cleaning up after the end of a long night shift, and the TV show Cops came on TV. And he and I were often lamenting the fact that we needed to get serious about where we were going in our lives. And one of us looked at the other, and I don't remember who now, to be honest, and said, you know, we could do that. We could be police officers. And the other agreed. And the next day, we started looking for departments that were hiring. It just so happened that the Chapel Hill Police Department was hiring. We both applied. Actually, he was hired immediately, and I was not, much to my dismay and frustration. It took me another two years after he had been hired to actually get picked up. But him him being here on the force um, and telling me about it and encouraging me kept me interested. So a couple of years later, they hired me, and here we are all these years later. He's still here. In fact, he's the commander of our investigative division. Um, we still reflect back on that moment that night when we made a decision that that uh, that led us into, you know, unbelievably rewarding career. But it was not a dream for either of us. Uh, but it's turned out to be something really, uh, really positive and enabled us to do something powerful in our community. Can you give me an overview of of Chapel Hill and also your department? Sure. Well, Chapel Hill uh, is uh, is a college town. Uh, our population is about 60,000 um, uh, year-round residents, and of course that swells when school is in session. Um, uh, affluent and highly educated community. We've, I can't remember the percentage, maybe 74% of our residents have a bachelor's degree or higher. Um, so uh, that, that makes for a highly engaged community, and uh, this is a town that is involved in its, its own local governance, uh, and that presents interesting opportunities and challenges if you work for the local government, but I also think it makes for really good town employees, including really good police officers, because the demands are very high on the level of service we provide. Our department uh, is about 120 officers, give or take, when whenever we're fully staffed, which is hard to do these days, and another um, 25 or 30 support staff who, who work here. Um, we also have, and this is a little bit of a unique arrangement, uh, the way our town departments are, uh, are oriented, I also command our parking division and our town building inspections and code enforcement folks. So that means that we have policing and parking and some building services all working together, which is an interesting um, collaboration, but makes for some really neat um, partnership opportunities across town staff. Um, as I mentioned, we, have, we, we benefit from a 
pretty low crime rate here. It's a great place to do police work. As I mentioned, a very engaged community um, who welcome the opportunities for to have us engaged in community outreach and attend neighborhood watch meetings and, and so on. Great place to do police work. Can we go back to February 10th of, of 2015? Two 911 calls came in. Can you talk about those calls? Absolutely. Um, I was actually still in the office that afternoon. We had finished up, just finishing up some kind of staff meeting and actually heard the call dispatched. I believe it was dispatched as uh, shots fired, and we got a couple of those calls in a condominium complex kind of out on the perimeter of our community as you're heading out of Chapel Hill towards the Research Triangle Park. Orange County 911, what's the address of your emergency? Hi there, I'm walking through the Finley Forest Department complex in Chapel Hill, um, and I just heard gunshots. I don't know what building it came from, but I heard kids screaming. When you say the screaming, was it, were they screaming words or? No, just screaming and it was multiple voices. Okay. Um, officers did arrive very quickly and almost immediately um, discovered that we had three young people who had, who were dead in an apartment there, and, and as we pretty quickly thereafter learned, had been murdered in that apartment. Can you describe the scene as as far as um, what was the the cause of of death? Were each of them shot? They were. They were all shot. And uh, they were all shot in a particularly brutal and cold fashion. Um, a really difficult scene, and difficult for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the the graphic nature of their murders, but also the fact that it was three young people. Um, and uh, particularly as we came to learn about these young people in the days and weeks and now years since this incident, uh, it made the scene even tougher. Fairly quickly after we arrived, we identified a suspect, and then not long after that, had a suspect in custody. So it was, uh, you know, 30 or 45 minutes of a scene not being totally secure, but pretty quickly thereafter, um, it became um, just a matter of processing a crime scene, and uh, because we knew who our suspect was. How was it that you were able to determine at least who a possible suspect was? Well, as it turns out, um, and pretty quickly in our investigation, I mean, really within minutes, um, in the course of talking to neighbors and other witnesses, uh, it became clear to us that the likely suspect was a neighbor, a man named Craig Hicks, who had had um, conflict with our victims and and also with other um, neighbors in the complex. And as we were... um, getting about the business of uh, determining where he might be, he actually turned himself in to a neighboring law enforcement agency and, uh, and made clear that he was the one responsible for these murders. My understanding is the victims, it was a, a 23-year-old male, his 21-year-old wife, and her 19-year-old sister. Was there something common about those three as far as religion? Yeah, they were three Muslims who very obviously practice their faith and were open and embrace their faith. And as I came to learn um, in the days immediately after the murders, um, 
you know, they were really role models in the area Muslim community. They were all schooled and grew up in a, a, an Islamic school and mosque over in Raleigh. Um, they were involved in all kinds of activities there. And um, I mean, their loss still reverberates through our community, but particularly in the, the weeks right after the murder. I mean, it was staggering the effect on our area, Muslim community. Um, it was really crippling for them in many ways because there's a um, palpable concern that this this these murders were perhaps part, uh, maybe the beginning of some directed, concentrated, coordinated attack on area Muslims. And that was a real fear for folks in the Muslim community here in our area for for quite a while after this incident. The fact that they were three students, three Muslim students, did that attract even more far-reaching media attention? It did. It did. And, and you know, these are families that, that really do have international contacts and, and still have family members all over the world. And um, because for a variety of reasons that, that this story gained international attention, the, the, the fact that it was three Muslims killed by a, um, a white male who pretty demonstrably spoke out about religion on his social media sites and who had a reputation in his neighborhood of being quickly angered and uh, confrontational. And uh, so those things alone are enough to garner attention. And what we also learned pretty quickly was that uh, we missed an opportunity to consider the effects specifically on the Muslim community. And and, uh, our initial statements about the crime, I think, actually um, contributed to the attention that these murders got. And I don't mean that they shouldn't have gotten attention because of how horrific they were. Unfortunately, a lot of the coverage was around the fact that we made an early statement that we thought, uh, based on interviews, that as trivial and as insulting as it actually sounds to the families of these three young people, our initial report suggested that what really set him off was a dispute over parking spaces. And he had been... Uh, and we said that in the statement, and I, and I absolutely have regretted that every day since that time, because it really distracted people from grieving and instead kind of diminished the significance of the crime. I mean, uh, what I heard from the family members of the victims was that um, talking about this as a matter over a parking dispute is to diminish what to them was very clear that they're loved ones were killed because of practicing their faith by someone who was intolerant to all kinds of faith, including theirs. Um, one of the regrets of biggest regrets of my career was how we mishandled the media um, releases, the preliminary media, media releases uh, on the heels of this murder, of these murders. If you could do it over again, what would be different about the way that you'd handle the media releases? I think uh, if we had to do over again, I think we actually would have said less. You know, in law enforcement, particularly when you're trying to get information out to calm a community, and I'll come back to that in a second, 
you uh, you try to err on the side of giving as much as you can and providing as much context as you can so people are not afraid to leave their homes and that was the intent here i mean we felt pretty clear that we didn't have information to support the belief that this was uh, a hate crime make no mistake this was a hateful crime but at no time in the investigation, even early on, did we believe we would meet the elements of a hate crime. Although we certainly investigated exhaustively, uh, thinking that perhaps something would be there to support that. We hadn't, hadn't, have not yet found that. Um, and in an effort to say that with very good intentions, what we unfortunately said was that, or at least what the message that many received was that we weren't considering that possibility at all. And in fact, we said it was just about parking. So I think to answer your question, if I had to do over again, we would have said much less in our initial statement. we, We have someone in custody, here are our victims, we grieve for the families, and we will continue to investigate vigorously and use all the resources available to us. And then as things developed or didn't develop, we could provide information of that story. But um, saying anything about a parking dispute when an entire community is grieving and trying to make sense of something and and also fearful that that the religion that they practice somehow had a role in in, in these murders, that was really a bad idea on our part, and, and I regret it to this day. Given that there's three young people, all students, each one shot in the head, they're all Muslim, what's the determining factor in when it becomes a hate crime? Well, I mean, you know, and of course in North Carolina, we don't really, we don't have a hate crime statute, so I mean, that's really a, becomes a federal question. But for us, I mean, looking to see if you can find any evidence that the murders that were committed were committed because of some specific animosity towards a race, a gender, a uh, religious practice. And we just didn't find evidence of that. Uh, There's a North Carolina statute that uh, has some of those same elements called ethnic intimidation. We also didn't meet the elements or didn't believe that we found evidence to meet the elements of that crime either. But I certainly understand from many members in our community, Muslim or not, and certainly from the family members of these three bright young people, that uh, this was as plain as day to them that it was a hate crime. And hearing from law enforcement that the evidence didn't support that charge, that, that did not feel good for them, and I certainly understand that. The suspect, Craig Stephen Hicks, I believe he was studying to be a paralegal. Did he have any history of violent behavior? I really didn't. I mean, we we didn't have any long criminal history with him from our department. We had maybe one or two encounters with him where he had been, um, I think he might have been the complainant in a call or two on uh, getting tow truck drivers to come out and remove people from parking areas where they should not have been parked at the complex. He was kind of a self-appointed uh, guardian of the parking space allocations in the complex where he lived. And we did have information 
pretty reliable information from many residents that he confronted people often if they parked places they should not. We did not have um, a violent history on file from him, but we certainly had anecdotal information from people in the neighborhood that he um, was easily angered, uh, and particularly around issues regarding where people parked their cars at at that complex. And about how long after the incident was discovered did the suspect turn himself in? Uh, It was an hour, an hour and a half. And, and by that time, we had determined who who we believed our suspect was, and we had begun the, uh, the discussions about how and when we put some information out about that. And, and as those conversations were underway, um, he turned himself into a sheriff's department uh, in a county just south of us, about a 20-minute ride from the crime scene. Um, and our investigators uh, headed that way immediately and took him into custody. Can you talk about what information uh, the suspect provided during those uh, those interviews? Well, I think what I would say would be that it became apparent to us um, early on in our conversations that he was responsible. And um, he has not wavered in anything he has shared since then. And um, I would say that our conversations have not again, have not taken us to a place where we have yet met that standard of, um, of the hate crime that so many had, had been interested in. Um, but I would also say that the conversations we had suggested that the case unfolded much as we believed early on that it had, um, a a volatile temper and a volatile history with respect to neighborhood interactions. Um, finally, went that step that many had feared he would. In a horrific event like this where you have three young people brutally murdered for no reason, I can't imagine how difficult it is for the family and, and for you as a chief to have to try to deal with the situation and console the family. Can you talk about what that is like? Well, yeah, thank you, Joe, because that's an important question. Um, you mentioned already these are three exceptional young people with bright futures two of whom are newly married to each other. And uh, they're senselessly taken from their families, taken from our community, taken from their schools. And um, and I mentioned earlier our initial media message, I think in, in some ways it was intended to be informational and instead kind of diminished the significance of the crime. And it, and it seemed to feel to many, and I think they were correct, and I certainly, at the time, I wasn't sure, but I'm particularly sure now that in an effort to provide uh, some a release that was informational, it was actually very hurtful. And I felt that very clearly. Um, uh, the murders happened on a Tuesday afternoon, and I spent most of the afternoon on the following Saturday in the living room of the Barakat family, uh, and uh, the Abu Salah family was there as well. And um, they they made clear to me in no uncertain terms over the course of several hours how um, heartbroken they were, not just at the loss of their family members, but also with how we talked about it and how skeptical they were based on our language with um, whether or not we would pursue the investigation uh, vigorously 
to see whether or not this ended up meeting the elements of a hate crime. And after several hours of, of speaking with them and hearing their grief and the frustration and anger too, I was um, really struck by how to a person, each family member came over and, and said, thank you for being here and thank you for sharing information with us. We apologize for that, <laughs> that, that exchange being so heated um, and so pointed. And I thought that was remarkably gracious, um, certainly more so than I probably would have been had I had the loss that they had just experienced. I think it speaks to the, the um, quality of the families, and it also gives you a sense in how remarkable the three young people who were killed in this senseless crime really were. And they came from remarkable stock um, who uh, demonstrate that to this day when, when, when they talk about these murders. And where are things at currently with the case? Well, um, he is awaiting trial. The FBI came in and worked with us early on this case um, because, as I mentioned earlier, there was a significant concern across the Muslim community. I mean, really across the country, but particularly in the Triangle area because uh, Dia, Rasan, and Yusser, the three young people, were so involved in the area Muslim community. There was great concern for the safety of others, uh, of other Muslims in the Triangle area, and the FBI um, came in to lend resources to us um, to help us expeditiously work this case, and to also, um, in a parallel way, uh, begin looking to see if it would meet the elements of federal hate crime statutes. Um, so the case actually is still under review. At the federal level, uh, the the possibility remains that a determination could be made um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office that this is, in fact, a hate crime. And I don't have a a sense of when that determination will be made, but uh, that possibility remains. You've worked your way up to the highest level, Chief of Police. For somebody who's considering going into law enforcement, what career advice would you give them? I happen to think that my path into law enforcement has turned out to be a really interesting one. You know, I mentioned uh, uh, an undergraduate degree in a field that is very much about communications and had a couple of jobs right after college. One I mentioned earlier was working in a restaurant, which is a great way to learn about people, to learn about customer service and to, to read people. And I also had a job as a salesperson. I worked for a company that sold uh, architectural hardware. But in any case, those two experiences gave me really good people skills. And I think too often the traditional path into law enforcement is criminal justice degree. Uh, you know, a young person is in a police explorer program, they get a criminal justice degree, they work a security job on the side, all of these things that are related to police work, or at least uh, appear to be related to police work, but actually are fairly narrow in terms of breadth of experience that they provide. So my advice would be, if you're interested in being a police officer, major in philosophy, get a job uh, doing something that has nothing to do with police work. Find as many ways as you can to learn about 
people and human interaction. And uh, I think you will be well served. We can teach you the technical parts of the law. We can teach you how to drive a police car safely. We can teach you all kinds of firearm skills and defensive tactic skills. But your people skills are really the things you bring with you to the work. And oftentimes, I think we, in police work, we fail to think about that. And instead, we encourage folks to follow um, uh, a more narrowly focused path to police work, which is a real missed opportunity. Chief Blue, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I have enjoyed our conversation. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. To help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.